0: Gave me that as a gift and it transformed um, how I looked at ministry and how I did my Christian life. Um, I'm still learning from it today, I have to say. Um, So, personally, I'm very grateful to Tony for that. Um, But just let me tell you a little bit about uh, our guest for today. Tony's married to Evelyn and they have two grown up children and uh, two grandchildren. They live in Cudworth near Barnsley in Yorkshire. I believe he's an ardent fan of Barnsley Football Club. And relaxes in. You're not supposed to laugh at that point. (laughs) And he relaxes in the summer by watching Yorkshire play cricket. So he's a real sports fan. Tony became a Christian at the age of 14, being converted in the Methodist chapel in the village where he grew up. After studying at London Bible College, he completed teacher training at Carnegie College in Leeds. After a short spell of teaching, Tony and Evelyn joined the Overseas Missionary Fellowship and worked in a church planting ministry in Malaysia. From 1975 to 1983. They returned to England and Tony pastored a church in West Yorkshire until 1993. That's when he became a full-time trainer with Equip, a missions training program. Tony's been involved in the leadership of Ackworth Community Church for over 20 years. And in 2000, Tony began to explore contemplative spirituality, seeking to integrate its insights into the evangelical and charismatic framework. Convinced of the importance of intimacy with God as the foundation of all effective ministry, he moved into a freelance ministry in 2002 <clears> with the intention of helping others to experience the grace of God in their lives and to be drawn into a closer relationship with him. His writing reflects his own spiritual journey and his passion to see those in Christian ministry develop and nurture their inner life so that they can be fruitful and effective for God and sustain themselves for the long haul of ministry. Today, we look forward to all that God has to say to us through Tony as we explore the theme, uh, Psalms uh, used in uh, spiritual formation, uh, based on his latest book, Deep Calls to Deep. A little uh, commercial break. Um, The book, Deep Calls to Deep, is available today at the bargain price. Tony's very kindly um, allowing us to sell it at the bargain price of £5. And Susan Chisholm gives away Susan Susan's our book lady for today, and um, the uh, they, books are over, are over at the side. Tony's also brought some other books that may be of interest um, to you, um, and they are all priced uh, up uh, there, and Susan will help you with that. So please uh, avail yourself of that if you would like to at break um, or, or at lunchtime. I'd like Tony just to, to come up, and um, I'm just going to share a prayer with him, and then we'll welcome him in the usual way. Thank you, Tony. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us and we just pray now for your servant Tony. We pray that he will know the anointing of your Holy Spirit and that um, we will see you through him today. Lord, speak to our hearts. Make us open to what you have for us today. But Lord, bless your servant now because I pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 I wonder if you'd like to welcome Tony. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. It's a joy and privilege uh, to be here and uh, to have the opportunity to share with you during this day on uh, the book of Psalms. Uh, When you listen to your life being uh, unveiled as uh, Jane did then, you realize how long it's been already. Uh, One lady said to me, having heard that kind of introduction, she said, What an interesting life you've had. It was the past tense that concerned me. as if it were all uh, behind. Uh, we're here to look at the book of Psalms, and to look at the book of Psalms in the terms of how it may help us in spiritual formation. Um, God has many ways by which he forms the life of Christ within us. <clears throat> For me, one of those ways is uh, supporting Barnsley FC. Uh, even this season, we went seven games when we lost every game, a club record. That really requires some depth of character to keep hanging on. But we've also gone seven games currently, undefeated, we've won every seven. What a turnaround. When every club was sacking their manager, we held on to ours during those seven defeats. Having won seven, he then resigned and he's gone off somewhere else. It takes real guts to be a supporter of Barnsley FC. And uh, something of that life, the challenges that life brings to us in various different ways, um, we're actually going to see uh, in the book of Psalms, because the Psalms, uh, to me, is a handbook for spiritual formation. So you have some notes there, if you'd like to turn to those notes. In this first session, I want to give you an introduction to the book of Psalms so that you get to know it a little bit uh, and can understand it. And uh, then also we're going to look at one psalm in particular. One of the things that's interesting about the book of Psalms is that we don't treat it in the same way that we treat other books in the Bible. Very often you will do a study on a whole book for instance the letter to Romans or the epistle of James and so on and you'll study it as a book with Psalms we tend not to do that we look at individual Psalms probably you've never studied the book of Psalms as a book in fact like me you may not have realized it's actually made up of five books if you look carefully Uh, you will see in your Bible that there are five sections to the book of Psalms, five different books, perhaps making a parallel with the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, really. But we tend to have our favourite Psalms. And so although there are 150 different Psalms, probably you will know only about 20 or so of them really well. There'll be many of them you will have no idea what's in them. Because we don't study the book as a whole. Today I want to kind of give you some clues as to how you can study the book of Psalms as a whole and how you can use it as a handbook for your own spiritual growth and spiritual formation. John Calvin once said about the book of Psalms, it's like an anatomy of the soul In other words, it reveals to you what the inner life is like. With all its moods, with all the ups and downs, in the Psalms you'll find times of celebration and you'll find times of despair. You'll see victory and you'll see defeat. You'll encounter people who are feeling really happy and are full of joy and others who are downcast and in deep despair. You'll find trust and faith, as well as anger and doubt. You'll find deep questions. All these kind of moods of the soul are reflected in the book of Psalms. And it helps us to build a life with God. For me, the, the book of Psalms parallels Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament is a story of the great men and women of faith. By faith, by faith, by faith, they did this and they did that. But in the book of Psalms, we kind of have a peek behind the scenes into how those people sustain their life with God. What does life with God look like? What do you do? How is this relationship with God formed and developed? So it helps us to build a life with God, but it shows us life with God as it really is in all its messiness. And that comes, actually, I think, with a great sense of refreshment to us because, if we're honest, life sometimes is really messy and even the life of faith is not always as straightforward as we would like it to be. And the Psalms give us words to use with God. It gives us a vocabulary for our praise and our worship for our prayer and our petition for our dialogue with God it gives us words i was listening to the songs we sang this morning and every song had words and phrases taken straight from the book of psalms if you listen carefully you'll see that mostly our vocabulary of worship comes out of the book of psalms creating me a clean heart straight from psalm 51 And even that line, oh, 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 I think must be in the psalms somewhere, I'm not quite sure where, but it gives us words to use with God. So let's think for a moment about the nature of these different psalms, 150 of them. They aren't really, first of all, poems. This is poetic language. And poetic language is the language of devotion, It's not the language of doctrine. This is not teaching you doctrine. This is helping you to express your life in God. Poetry has a great way of helping us to share what's going on inside us, sometimes in metaphor, in simile. But but it's the language of the soul. Poetry. And it has to be read as poetry. That's why the Psalms are so beautiful, incidentally, and why they so give themselves to devotion. Because... It's, a, it's poetic. But they're also prayers. They're prayers that come from the heart. They are sincere prayers. Some of them liturgical prayers, written and constructed, but some of them just coming out of a person's individual experience and their cry to God. And that's why we can make those prayers our own. And some of them are songs for celebration and to cause us to sing and dance and lift our hearts to God and some of them are songs for us to sing the blues as well when we feel down and uh, despair grips our soul some of the psalms are individual they're written by individual people some and and the the pronoun is i many of them are corporate they're, they're for use together with others in worship the pronoun is we Some of them were written spontaneously with no thought of being published. That's why they are so very deeply personal. It's almost that you can look over somebody's shoulder and see what they're writing in their journal. These are private dialogues with God. Now everybody's reading them. Uh, You would have probably put confidential on your journal so nobody would do that, to be destroyed in the event of my death. But uh, these... Musings of the soul are deeply personal. Some of them are very crafted. The psalm we're going to look at uh, in, in this session is one that's been very carefully thought out. It's been crafted and shaped by a wordsmith. The psalms reflect their human authorship. I think 11 different authors are named. King David, of course, wrote many of the psalms. But so did Asaph, so did the sons of Korah, that band of temple musicians. So did Solomon and Moses and other different individuals. But behind those individual authors is the divine inspiration that God caused these Psalms to be written and also caused them to be gathered together and collected. We don't know actually who put the book of Psalms together. David certainly uh, would have Gathered together in early collection, but some of the psalms outda- outdate David, so they can't have all been collected by David. My money is on Ezra, uh, as being in the exile after the exile, one who gathered them together. But we don't actually know that; only that God was in the process. We'll find, as we read them, many similarities with our own lives, even in the 21st century but also some differences. They are written from another culture and another geographical context. They're also written under the Old Covenant. That's very important to bear that in mind. They reflect life with God under the Old Covenant. But there are many similarities with the life that we have under the New Covenant. But you don't need to offer sacrifices as the psalmist did. That is past and gone because Christ offered the one for all time sacrifice similarities and differences. But what you will find is that Christ is in many of these scriptures in surprising places. Some of the Psalms are clearly messianic. Psalm 22 is a Psalm of the cross. Some of the darkest Psalms, actually you will find they are quoted in the New Testament and they echo the experience of Jesus. Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? the words that Jesus used on the cross. He took the words from Psalm 22 and you can find Christ in all the scriptures. It's interesting, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, he interpreted to those two disciples the things in all the scriptures concerning himself. The things in the books of Moses and it says the things in the book of Psalms. The things concerning himself. Christ is here in the Psalms in all his beauty. So how do we understand them? How do we interpret them? The obvious way is to look at the historical setting that caused them to be written. We know that many of the Psalms are written by David. So sometimes you can actually fit a Psalm into the circumstances of David's life. In fact, some Psalms have that as their heading. This happened when David was doing this. And you can look at some psalms and you can say, yeah, that's a psalm written in exile. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? By the waters of Babylon there we hung hung up our harps. We couldn't sing. That's a song of exile written from Babylon. You can can look at the historical setting. That actually helps. You can also look at them and, and ask this question, well, how would this psalm have been used in the worship of Israel? Because that's what they were written for. Sometimes psalms are described as the hymn book of the temple. And these psalms were used on the great occasions when the people of Israel gathered together three times a year in Jerusalem. They were sung together. Sometimes they were used just in the daily worship. And some of them would have been known and memorized by individual believers so that they could use them in their own relationship with God. How were they used in the worship of Israel? More recent scholarship has focused... On the question, what type of psalm is this? Is it a psalm of thanksgiving? Is it a hymn of praise? Is it a song of lament, of sadness? Is it about the salvation history of Israel? Is it a psalm to be used on a grand occasion like the enthronement of the king? Is it a kingship psalm? Is it a song of trust? Is it one of the songs of Zion, about Zion and Jerusalem? So some scholars kind of classify them according to these different categories. Of course, the Psalms were not written with those classifications in mind, so sometimes that's not a very exact science. And some Psalms might fit different categories. So if you look at a list of classification of the Psalms, no two lists will be the same, because actually they weren't written Uh, quite as specifically as that. But it does help you to understand what type of psalm is this that I'm reading. That gives you some of its background, helps you to understand it. But for my mind, the most helpful way to read the psalms is actually to look for their pastoral value. And as I say, for the purpose of spiritual formation, what does this teach me about life with God? and my relationship with him. And in particular, in recent times, there has been this rediscovery of the place of lament. The Psalms of Lament are those difficult Psalms. They're those Psalms sometimes when the writer gets very angry and prays those wonderful prayers, God break their teeth. when he's so frustrated and so angry, he wants God to remove his enemies and so on. There's some of those psalms that come from a very deep place when the psalmist feels abandoned by God and doesn't know what's going on in in his life. And what we've begun to realize is that actually life with God does involve these deep places And that we must not deny those deep places. And we must pretend it isn't happening. But we must allow God to use the deep places to form his life within us. And that's where the songs of lament really come together. And the the book, the title of it is Deep Calls to Deep. And it focuses on some of the Psalms of Lament. Because it's in the deep places of life that God invites us into a deep relationship with Himself. If you want to go deeper into God, it will almost certainly be more through suffering than it will be through success. It will be more through suffering than it will be success. Success does not tend to create deeper people, but suffering does. And therefore, the the Psalms of Lament have a great place in the life of spiritual formation. One of the Old Testament scholars uh, who has emphasized this and brought this to our attention is a man called Walter Brueggemann. And uh, he classifies these Psalms of Lament and some of the Psalms of Praise and some of the Songs of Trust uh, into three different categories. I want to use the flip chart just to explain this to you. Walter Brueggemann talks about, first of all, psalms of orientation. And psalms of orientation are those psalms that reflect the situation when God is in control and everything in my life is as it should be. Therefore I'm full of praise and thanksgiving and I can lift my heart to God. Praise and worship is easy. But then, Brueggemann says, there are psalms of disorientation when it's as if life falls apart and I may wonder where God is and things don't seem to be working out according to the formula that I live by and I'm brought into a place of chaos and confusion and I have to find God in this deep place. And then he suggests that there are psalms of reorientation that reflect The situation when that individual has come through that period of chaos and is out the other side, and they're now looking back on it and saying, This is what I learned through that experience. This is what I now know about God. This is how God worked and delivered me. And that scheme fits into what is a very common understanding of the spiritual life. It's like a U shaped valley. So on the left hand side here you have the Psalms of Orientation which is life with God as it usually is. When God is king he clearly is ruling over the earth he's clearly blessing my life and my life is full of praise and thanksgiving as a response. Orientation. Then comes the descent into the valley to the psalms of disorientation when it's almost as if life falls apart. Psalm 23 talks about the valley, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil for you are with me. So sometimes we are plunged into a place of despair, a place of failure, a place of brokenness, of a place of confusion, of not understanding. But eventually God brings us out to the other side, which is the place of new orientation. Which is actually different to what it was here, because it's now at a deeper place. I have learned things about God that I could learn no other way. Things that you cannot learn through textbooks things that you cannot be taught in college, things that only life and life with God will teach you. So this is the pattern that you can see in the book of Psalms, and different Psalms reflect different sides of that valley. If you will look at the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus also reflects this shape. In, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, for instance... This is the way that Jesus walked. Even though he was equal with God, he was up here. He did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, to be held on, but he emptied himself. He began to come down. He took human form, made in the likeness of man the form of a servant. He humbled himself, even to death, even death on a cross. He was in that place of confusion. That's where he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's where he was. But then, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name and now he's seated at the right hand of God. But the Jesus who is here is not the same as the Jesus who was here because he has now taken our human flesh, he has now become a merciful and faithful high priest. He could not become a merciful and faithful high priest had he not gone through here. Now he has lived our life, he understands our sorrows. And if that was the pattern for Jesus, then that will be the pattern for you and I. So John um, 12, verse 24 says, unless a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. So our fruitfulness in terms of bearing the fruit of the Spirit, in terms of becoming more like Jesus, our fruitfulness in the terms of the impact that our life has on others, in bringing blessing to them, in bringing the Gospel to them, in sharing the love and compassion of God, will inevitably involve us in going through this journey. It's inevitable. Now, of course, the great danger for us is that we want to stay only here and we would like to get to here but not via here. (laughs) So there is a kind of theology which is very common and which kind of says you can go here but you can't. So that theology which is only about victory and only about success would pretend that you could go from here to there but actually when the bottom falls out of your life as surely it will at some point if that is your understanding you will not know how to cope with here. In fact you may well get give up altogether because you'll say it doesn't work. Well it was never intended to work that way. It will take you to the deepest valley and so Paul says to the Corinthians death is at work in us so that life may be at work in you that's the heart of ministry friends no shortcuts no quick fixes, no easy solutions that's the way the life of God is going to be formed in you Our confidence, though, is this. We know that in everything God works those things together for our good. So even the dark and the difficult times are actually being used by Him to form the life of God, to make us deeper people. Are you with me? Do you understand that? Does anybody want to ask any question? I just pause. I know it's a big group, so maybe uh, it may be difficult, but... This is somewhat different to the way that many people want to present the Christian life to us. Yes, there is victory. Yes, there is overcoming. But you only have victory through struggle. Victory only is meaningful if there's battle, if there's struggle. And for ourselves, we need to understand this, and in our pastoral care of others, we need to understand this dynamic. That actually God in his love may lead us it's the sort of thing we could maybe think Okay, we're prepared to go through this horrible disorientation and come out but just down the road is there another disorientation yeah Yeah. actually Brueggemann says that we're always actually somewhere on this diagram we may be up here today we may be down there tomorrow another day (coughs) myself I feel that actually the norm is that we are up here And we have long periods when we're up here. But in the course of a lifetime, I'm thinking about a lifetime. As Jane said, I've lived a long life. You maybe have three, four, five real deep experiences when you are taken to a deeper place. And each place of depth releases more resurrection life in you. It's very hard to understand that when you're young and just beginning life, because you feel in control of life. But as you go through life, you actually begin to realize you're not very in control of life at all. <laughs> Do you see that same pattern collectively: in a, in a Yes, church, I see that? it in the church as well and in organizations, because it's, it's the pattern of life. This is the basic pattern of spiritual formation: life, death, resurrection. life, death, resurrection. And it's happening all the time. Life, death, resurrection. It's a basic principle of, uh, of spiritual life and spiritual formation. So we're always uh, somewhere. So what, what Brueggemann is saying, and this is helpfully, is that we have lost the song of lament. We don't know how to sing a sad song. So tragedies happen in our church But when we come together on Sunday, we're still singing the songs of orientation. Some friends of mine lost their daughter, just 22. She died suddenly, tragically. They went to church. They couldn't cope with church. Because everybody was singing happy songs. And they wanted to sing a sad song. (laughs) They just wanted to mourn and grieve. There was no place at all in their church for them. And sometimes we need to include some of that. Sometimes it's a corporate thing that actually when this has happened to us as a body of Christ, we need to recognise, you know, this is a tragedy, you know. Not be afraid to acknowledge that. But we, we live in a culture that wants to avoid suffering at all costs, that has no place for it, that wants to eliminate it. And that's the the culture of modernity that says we're in control here's a formula. If you do this, you'll be in control. But life is not like that. And uh, the world is increasingly disoriented. So there's some quotes from Walter Brueggemann uh, about that very thing. It's a curious fact, he says, that the church has, by and large, continued to sing songs of orientation in a world increasingly experienced as disoriented. Something to think about. Well, okay, over the page you have (coughs) in more detail what I've called stages of faith development as seen in the Psalms. So a little bit about orientation and some examples of Psalms that fit this kind of category. Orientation, remember, is when we're in that close relationship with God God's the creator. The world's a beautiful place. God is good. He's sovereign. He's ruling in my life. I can see his goodness all around me. If I get sick, there's healing. If we're poor, God provides. In trouble, he delivers us. If we've got enemies, he deals with them. And those who disobey his commands, well, they'll suffer for it. So it's easy to believe and prayer expresses gratitude. Worship is filled with praise and celebration. Nothing wrong with that. that. That is true, it's correct. But it's not always like that. It's not always like that. There are seasons of the soul. So disorientation, there are some of the Psalms there. When life is not always straightforward and our faith is challenged. Times when God may seem far away, even though we've done nothing wrong. We haven't sinned. Times when we get sick and healing doesn't come. Times when we feel downhearted and disappointed and discouraged. Times when we suffer unjustly and God seems silent and inactive, doesn't seem to respond to our prayers. He allows it to go on. Times when it looks as though evil triumphs One of the great questions that people often ask is, you know, why do good people suffer? But an equal question for me is, why do bad people prosper? Because sometimes they do. These are the cries in the book of Psalms, actually. And sometimes we have our questions, why, God? How long is this going to go on, Lord? Where are you, God? When will you do something? And in many contexts, there's no place for honest questions. People only want certainty, can't cope with doubt. So in disorientation prayer, is not easy. It's a heartfelt cry, it may even be a complaint. But then there is this hope, this belief that out of death comes resurrection. A new day will dawn when we have passed through that valley when we have been refined and purified, when we have learned the lessons that we need to learn when our faith is deepened and strengthened, and when we ha- now have a testimony to give of what God has done and how He has rescued me and, and what He has put within me. You see, I began, as many of you, uh, in Christian ministry, very young. I was at Bible college by the time I was 18, and I was out in ministry by the time I was 22. 24, I was leading a church congregation in another culture in the country. And I could say then, God is faithful. And it was true. But I only knew that in a tiny way, because I was only 24, my life was very short. It's true God is faithful. But when I stand before you today, and I'm 65 now, and I say God is faithful, it means a lot more to me than it did when I was 22, because I know God is faithful. (laughs) And I know it because I've traveled through some of those ways. Do you, do you understand how that truth... It's always true, but it's becoming more true. And it's, it's becoming my truth as well. I know that God is faithful. That's what this is about. Forming the life of God with us. So, well, let's have a look at this psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 145. I've printed out the words for you from Psalm 145, just so that we all have the same words. It doesn't matter actually what version you use, but it's just really so this morning you can all see the same words. And Psalm 145 is a beautiful psalm, and it paints the picture for us of orientation. And that's a good place to be. Psalm 145 is a psalm that has been carefully constructed. It's not come out of the hard experience of life. It's been written in the study, in the ideal atmosphere, when you can sit down and craft a psalm. How do I know that? Because it's what we call an acrostic psalm. There are several of them. And an acrostic is one where you take the each letter of the alphabet in turn and you write a verse according to that particular letter of the alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. There are 21 verses in this psalm. That's because one verse has two sentences in it. But it's like if you were using our alphabet, verse 1 would begin with the letter A, verse 2, letter B, verse 3, letter C, and so on. Actually, if you want to do that as a devotional exercise, write a psalm about God and who He is and His greatness and His glory, just using the letters of the alphabet. It's quite a fun thing to do. So it's been actually carefully crafted. And it's been crafted, really, uh, as a teaching aid so that we can understand what God is like. And there's no better psalm than this one if you actually want to introduce a group of new believers to understand who God is and what he's like. This is what it's about. It's an introduction to God. So it begins with this opening praise to God. I will extol you, my God the King, I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. So here is the psalm that's flowing out of personal relationship. My God the King. It's a psalm that reflects a commitment to praise God. And praise, of course, is something that the Holy Spirit has renewed within the church in in fairly recent times, in actual fact, within my lifetime. We only used to sing dreary hymns. And then somebody got the idea of bringing a guitar into church. Wow, what a revolution that was. And then some drums as well, goodness me. The place was shaken, quite literally. But we began to understand the importance of praise, of praising God with all our hearts. And much of our inspiration came from the book of Psalms, because many of the Psalms are filled with praise. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Every day I will praise you. Here is praise as a way of life. It's a good discipline. I will extol your name forever and ever praise is still a good discipline in the spiritual life and the psalmist often says you know i'll praise you whatever is happening i will bless your name so opening praise to god and praise is easy when things are going well but god's people can be expected to adopt praise as a way of life then there's a little section about god the creator Great is the Lord and most worthy of praises, greatness no one can fathom. Uh, verse three, let's just uh, hold on to that, because it, it, it does sow a seed in our minds that God's greatness cannot be fathomed. The tendency of modernity, people in our scientific world, with our scientific worldview, is that we can understand God. And the great danger of theology is that it it tries to put God in a box. This is God and this is how he works. Well, actually, sometimes God is bigger than your box. (laughs) Because he is God. (laughs) If you could fathom God with your mind, you would be as great as God. But you can never fathom God. So just bear that little seed thought in mind. Because the the very greatness of God means that I will never fully understand him. His ways are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. You cannot counsel God. You cannot even fathom Him. Anyway, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. So here the writer paints a picture of God the Creator. And his greatness is seen all around us and is experienced in our lives. He talks about God's works, about his acts, about his deeds, about his abundant goodness, about his righteousness. We've been singing of it this morning, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hands hath made. And creation is there to speak to us about the greatness of God and we see it and we glorify God for it. And sometimes it takes our breath away. Yesterday I went for my daily walk. I live in in Yorkshire, I live in the former coal mining area, it's terraced houses and and so on. But on the little path that I take sometimes, it just gives you a view over uh, towards the Pennines. And yesterday was just an absolutely stunning day. The air was crystal clear. Even in Yorkshire, the air was crystal clear. You could see for miles and miles, the sky was blue. There was just a thin strip of white clouds on the horizon. I just had to stop and worship God for what was there before my eyes. This is the great creator God. So I praise him, we praise him together One generation tells another too. It's an intergenerational praise that is going on really. God's people can revel in that greatness, delight in His creation and be aware of His power, the great Creator. Then verses 8 to 13, God the gracious ruler. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And I'll include verse 13 there. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. You see, not only is God creator, but he's also king and ruler and sovereign and he rules over all. And the focus here is upon the kingdom. Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom, but the kingdom of God is there in the Old Testament as well. And it means the rule of God in his universe and in his world. And that's what gives us our sense of peace because we know that God is on the throne. He is in control. He is high and lifted up. And his train fills the temple as Isaiah saw it. That gives us great confidence to know that he is king. And this kingdom is splendid and it's glorious. And we are part of it. But, and, and what is the king like? Well, the very nature of the king is that he is loving and gracious. Verse 8 is the great uh, Jewish declaration of who God is. It's the declaration that was given to Moses when Moses says, Tell me your name. Who are you, God? And God said, I am the Lord. Gracious and compassionate. This is how God has revealed himself. This is what we know that he is like. He's great. Listen to these words. He's gracious. He's compassionate, he's slow to anger, he's rich in love, he's good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. This is our God's friends, that's his wonderful, his glorious, his beautiful, we love him because of who he is. This is the king and he rules in our lives and he rules over our lives and he rules in this world. He is the gracious ruler. And then God is the generous provider. Verses 13 to 16 there. Oh. The Lord is trustworthy in all his promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. You see, this God is the faithful God. He is faithful to his promises. When God makes a promise, he's not like some politician who can easily renege on his promises, who, or who never intended to keep in any anyway. The nature of this God is that he is faithful and trustworthy. Therefore we depend upon his promises. And we receive his promises and we live by his promises. That's what the life of faith is about. He's faithful in all that he does. And his faithfulness is seen in different ways. It's seen by the way that he upholds us. When we fall, he lifts us up. He's there for us. In our moments of doubt or disappointment. He lifts up all who are bowed down. He's faithful in the way that he provides for us. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. He's a faithful, generous provider. His name is Jehovah Jireh, which means on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Part of our journey was to join the Overseas Missionary Fellowship and it's a faith mission. When you join the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, you empty your bank balance into their bank balance. (laughs) And then you live by faith. And we learn to live by faith. And that verse is a particular favorite amongst uh, people in OMF uh, because it reminds us that God opens up his hand every creature to satisfy. There's a little song based on those words that they often sing. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. And we never wanted for everything. We didn't have a great deal, but we never wanted for anything. So we went and we emptied our bank balance and we lived for eight years on that basis with OMF. Then when we came back to this country, we had to start all over again. I was saying last night to, to Jane and, and Wendy, I never had any worries about, fa- about finances when I was living by faith. It was only when I started earning my living that I started to have worries about finance. <laughs> But we came back with nothing. And I remember lying awake one night thinking, God, some of my contemporaries now that have got established in their careers, they'll have lovely homes, they'll have nice cars, they'll have everything that they want, and we've got nothing. And I felt God say to me, wait and see what I will do. Wait and see what I will do. Within months of returning home and having no house of our own and two small children, God gave us a wonderful five-bedroom house and someone gave us the deposit to get a mortgage on that house. And after we moved in, God brought that back to me and said, See what I told you? I provided for you. That's the nature of this God. You can have confidence in him, as many of you begin ministry, to know that actually... Although you may not have a great deal, you will have everything that you want because that is the Lord, our shepherd. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Then, verses 17 to 20, God, the guardian protector. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him, In truth, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So here is the guardian protector. Again, the character of God is described. Now he is righteous and loving. He does that which is right. He's just, in other words. And all his doings reflect that. In particular, he is near to us. The Lord is near to all who call on him. That's a great promise, isn't it, that we always take hold of? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Jesus says. We believe that the Lord is near. He is near to us in our times of difficulty, when we call on him. He listens, verse 19. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He listens to their cry. We believe in answered prayer. We pray because we know that God hears our prayer and he answers our prayers. And many of us have testimony of answered prayer. Because he is the guardian protector. But there is a division. And uh, this is a strong thought that goes throughout the Psalms that the righteous prosper and the wicked will be punished. (coughs) That's about justice in the world, that ultimately there has to be an accountability. Ultimately there must be justice. That's what the psalmist is referring to. If you're righteous, if you follow the ways of God, His blessing will be upon you. If you're unrighteous, you rebel against God, you go your own way, that will lead to disaster. There are only two ways you can walk. And uh, that's something that's reflected in many of the psalms, and it's just a little echo of it in this psalm. So here's the guardian protector. So here is a world where God is in control. Here is a world where things are working according to the formulas of faith. Here is a a world where we feel happy and safe and secure. Here is a world where everything is as we would want it to be. I sometimes call it a psalm for a sunny day. Then the conclusion brings us back to this place of, of praise. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name. So in other words, it's that commitment. I'm going to be somebody who praises God and praises God with all of my heart and I'm going to join the great song of creation because every creature praises God. And there's this wonderful sense of harmony when the world is as it should be and and I'm in a right relationship with God and I feel at one with his creation. That's what the psalmist is talking about. This is this wonderful alphabet of praise. Psalm 145. That reflects the period of orientation. I wonder if you feel it. Do you feel it? Mm -hmm. Orientation. So, now here's something for you to do. At the bottom of the page there, because we have time to do this, um, I'm going to suggest that you might find a partner to do this with, small twos or threes. If you want to do it by yourself, feel free to do it by yourself. Let's just take a, a, a few minutes to think about these questions together. As you read that psalm, how does it make you feel? That's the first question. Then of all the descriptions of God in the psalm, which one resonates the most for you? Which one best sums up your understanding, your present understanding of God? And then you may be able to share a testimony of how the things which are said about God in this psalm have proven to be true in your experience. In other words, we'll just enjoy this psalm together for a little while. Is that okay? I want to give you ten minutes to do that, then at uh, five, two, we'll uh, just uh, come back together again. So you can move your chair around a little bit, I think that's okay if you want. So find a partner, be by yourself if you want, twos, threes, but not large groups, just a small group, so you can just have a personal psalm. And maybe you might finish your your time with just thanking God for who He is because that's true, it's true, it's wonderfully true. That is how it will always be. But life is not always like that. And God allows difficulties to come into our lives because that is the way where we are mostly formed and shaped. The Bible talks about the treasures of darkness, that the real gold is found in the deep places. And, and God calls us into deep places so that we may know him uh, in a deeper way. So whilst we love to be there, sometimes we will find ourselves taking this dip into a period of di- disorientation. And whilst that's always true, sometimes we may, we may wonder, is it actually true? It should be our anchor point, but And it's always there as the backstop, if you like, but sometimes our experience may seem to contradict that. So in the second session, we're going to look at a psalm, two psalms of disorientation, just to get the feel of that and how we cope with those times and what the psalmist has to say about that. So you need some hot coffee to warm you up? Yes. Our seats again, folks. Thank you. Hopefully you have uh, thawed out again. It's been great to hear from one or two other football supporters with their tales of woe (laughs) and despair. I didn't uh, realize how much God used football to form the life of God within certain of us, but clearly he does. There must be a, a book there somewhere. So, We're going to look at uh, the question of disorientation now. Uh, If you like, looking at some of the songs of lament. Uh, Many different experiences uh, come under this term of lament. When you sing a song of lament, it's like singing the blues. Uh, It's that song that comes from a deep place and that can only be found in a deep place and only sung in a deep place and It it has the minor key about it. Uh, It comes from uh, depth of experience and suffering. And of course times of suffering are are very creative times. Artistically, musically. uh, Something is formed within us uh, during those periods. So from the period of orientation when everything is as it should be and life is working out and we're at peace and God is blessing us Sometimes we find ourselves plunged into this time of chaos, of disorientation. It might be through sickness. Many of the Psalms of Lament reflect times of sickness. Some of them reflect times of failure, moral failure, like Psalm 51. Uh, Some, uh, like the one we're going to look at this morning, is about uh, depression and despair and disappointment with God. Some express injustice when we're suffering unjustly and that's the experience of uh, many people. Uh, Some express bewilderment. One of the great issues for Israel was how Jerusalem could be taken captive and the temple destroyed and they were taken off into Babylon. Many many things bring us into that period uh, of... Disorientation. Uh, I'd perhaps like just to share a personal um, example of that. Uh, in the very much to the first half, half of my life, I lived with this watchword those who honor me, I will honor. That's a verse from the book of Samuel. If you know the story of Eric Little. Uh, that Olympic runner, that was the verse of scripture that was past him as he was running one of his final races in the Olympics. Those who honour me. He wouldn't run on the Sabbath, you see, and he gave up his best chance of winning gold and he chose another event, but he still won gold. Those who honour me, I will honour. And that was my little watchword that I lived by. And for most of my, the first part of my life, uh, that watchword was true. But then something happened that threw all that into chaos as far as I was concerned. And that concerned my children. I've got two children. Um, They've grown up now. But when they came to the age of 18, both of them stopped attending church and, to all intents and purposes, stopped practicing uh, their faith. That was a huge blow uh, uh, to Evelyn and myself because I felt that God had let me down. I had not asked much from God, but if there was one thing I did desire, it was that my children should follow in his ways. And we brought them up with that hope and that expectation. And with this watchword, those who honor me, I will honor. And when the reality of that dawned on me, my faith was thrown into total Chaos and confusion because I thought, God, you've let me down. I've not asked much from you. In fact I've given up a great deal for you. And yet you haven't you've allowed this to happen. And it plunged me into this period of disorientation. I didn't understand those terms, these terms then. Uh, It might have helped if I did, but I just felt the bottom had fallen out of my neatly constructed world. Fortunately, at that time, I'd begun to meet with a spiritual director, a lady called Joyce Huggett. Some of you may have read some of Joyce's writings. And uh, when I began to express uh, this to her, and particularly about this watchword that I was living by, those who honour me, I will honour, she said to me, Tony, do you think that's correct? And I was shocked. I was shocked because that's a Bible verse. And uh, Eric Little used it. And she said, do you think that's true? So I had to go back and ponder whether that was true or not. And I think it is true, but I had read into that verse what I wanted to come out of it. That we can sometimes do that. In other words, I was determining how God should fulfill that in my life. And the obvious way to me was that my children would grow up uh, to know and to love him and uh, to serve him. And I had to unpack a lot of my own understanding about God and about how I related to God. I realized i actually made a bargain with God. And I don't think that's how a relationship with God is meant to work and... Uh, I was reading in what I wanted to get out. It seemed to be a very noble thing that I wanted to get out, but it was still a reading into how God should do that. Those who honour me, I will honour. In fact, God has honoured me in many different ways. But that one area remains to this day still an unresolved issue as far as I'm concerned. But it plunged me into this time of disorientation and I had to find God again in a different way. It was a very humbling experience, a very chastening experience, very confusing experience. I've not resolved it still, intellectually. I I look at some people, they don't honour God, and their children are on fire for Him. And I think of all that Evelyn and I have given up for God, and our children are not for Him, and it doesn't add up to me. (laughs) I don't understand it. It seems not fair. But... How often we cry, God, that's not fair, because our understanding of what's fair and right and so on uh, is not always correct. All I know is that God has worked something much deeper into me through that experience uh, than would have been possible otherwise. I tell you this, if my children had grown up as I wanted them to, I'd have been telling everybody how to bring up their children. I would have been so proud and so priggish about it all and I would have had no sympathy for those who also found themselves in difficult places. Now, because my own heart was broken, I can empathize and sympathize with other people for whom life's not working out quite as they expected or planned. And that's something that God can only form in us when we ourselves have this experience of going into a deep place. Not everybody wants to go into a deep place and it can be frightening and disturbing for some people and I often do retreats on this theme and in the book you'll see that there are several psalms of lament and uh, one of them is Psalm 88 I think it is, which is the darkest of all the psalms and it ends on this note, darkness is my familiar friend. Uh, There is no resolve to it at all. Sometimes I have to leave that psalm out because I think people just can't cope with it. (laughs) Uh, But, um, And I'm not going to use that psalm today, although I do think you would cope with it. But when you think about going down into the valley, if you feel a little bit scared of it, try and think that it's a bit like abseiling. I don't know if you've ever done abseiling. If you have, you're crazy, but I've never done it actually. But if you can imagine that here you are, you're called to go deep, but you're held. Just like when you're abseiling and you trust that that rope is strong enough to hold you and you trust that whoever's got that rope at the top, maybe it's bound around a rock or something, that it will actually hold. So actually you can go into the deeper place because you are held. In my experience and there were other issues that came to me not just the issue of my children I came to the point where I really wanted to give up altogether Uh, I was pastor of a church in Yorkshire I wanted to give up altogether and I'd been invited to share in another church somewhere else and I went dutifully thinking as I went this is probably the last time I'm going to do this And I delivered my little talk, and then the leader asked me to greet people at the door, so I went to do that. And a gentleman came to speak to me, and he will never know that this happened. And he just said some words to me, and they weren't words of prophecy. He didn't say, I feel the Lord is saying this, brother. He just shared a word of encouragement and appreciation. And something clicked inside me that just gave me a glimmer of hope. And I felt I was being held by a very thin strand that was very, very thin, but very, very strong. That even though my grip on God was so weak, his grip on me was still there and he would not let me go. And it proved a turning point it didn 't happen overnight, but it just gave me a glimmer of hope. So I want to encourage you with that that even in the darkest night, uh, there is still hope now we 've mentioned this idea of of songs of lament, sad songs, songs that reflect uh, the deep realities of life, one or two Hymns uh, come to mind and, and maybe you've got some in your army tradition as well, I don't know but one that's known quite generally is in heavenly love abiding, no change my heart shall fear and safe is such confiding for nothing changes here. That's a song of lament that's written out of deep experience but there are not many that we actually use. Matt Redmond has written one or two songs. I want to play a song by um, a friend of mine, Dave Bilbra. Uh, he's just got a new album that's called uh, The Song That I Sing. It's a beautiful album. Uh, It's about grace. got some lovely brass music, so some of you may like that. But this actually is a song of lament. And I said today, I think you're very brave to include this on your album and uh, when you're doing your concerts to sing this song. And I asked him, Dave, what kind of response does it get? He said, well... Actually, people like it when they get to understand it. But it's a song of lament. So I want to play it for you. You've got the words there, actually. So I don't know what page they're on, but we're going to be looking at Psalm 42 and 43. Maybe somebody can find the page number. I don't have numbers on my Anybody find the page number? Page 2. I, yes. I said to Jane when I there's something wrong with the numbers in this but anyway. Page 2. So maybe just listen to this and try and get the feel of it this song and and what's being said.
2: so many questions unresolved I can't begin to understand I'm a stranger in a foreign land who doesn't know the way back home surround me with your present help revive this wounded fragile heart pour out your healing oil I again speak your words of life tender words of life keep me safe through the storm help me trust in your redeeming love once more oh. Those who sow in tears Will reap with songs of joy Those who sow in tears Will reap with songs of joy Let my mouth be filled with laughter And my tongue was singing Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer Rescue me from this wasteland and restore my soul my
1: It's a great example of a song of lament. Songs of lament are very honest. They face life as it really is, head on. They ask questions. They're not afraid to dialogue with God openly and honestly. And uh, for Hebrew Christians, the covenant was so secure, they felt, yeah, we can have a dialogue here, God. We can have a disagreement, if you like. I can argue with you a bit. They weren't afraid to do that. So there's an honesty, a raw honesty sometimes. But always that little glimmer of hope. Always that belief in that place of orientation that that we seem to have left behind. And a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of truth. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. That's the truth that comes out of a place of lament. That's something you only know if you have been there. So that's a wonderful example of a song of uh, lament. So we're going to look at Psalm 42 and 43, two psalms that go together. And these two psalms are a, a song of lament which are about disappointment and heartbreak and uh, feeling abandoned by God and rejected by Him. We know that that is not true, but we feel that way sometimes. And you can see that this psalm has been carefully constructed when we look at it, and the reason we put these two psalms together is that there is a chorus that runs through a verse that is repeated in verse 5, verse 11, and then again in verse 5 of the second psalm. And interspersed is some verses. First of all, the psalmist is really saying, I feel spiritually dry. Then he's saying, I feel overwhelmed. Then he's saying, I feel abandoned. That's the kind of structure uh, behind the psalm and uh, why we put those two things uh, together. The heading of the psalm describes it as being a maskil, a maskil of the sons of Korah. And you'll see in many of the psalms there are these musical terms, we're not sure what most of them mean, but a maskil seems to be a song of instruction. This is a song to teach you something. It's a mascal. So it contains some truth. And the truth, the instruction, is that in the deepest sorrow, the soul can still turn towards God. I can still choose the direction of my soul, even in the deepest sorrow and deepest disappointment. But it is a choice. The sons of Korah were those who were a guild of musicians and responsible for temple worship so the writer of psalm 42 and 43 does seem to be although he's unnamed but he seems to be one of that one of those worship leaders who often used to go up to the temple leading others in worship verse 4 says how i used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of god here is a leader an established leader of others a worship leader probably he seems to be uh, a musician. He talks uh, in Psalm 43, verse 4, about praising God with his harp. So he seems to be one of those musicians. And the suggestion is that he is one of those who has been carried away into exile in Babylon. You remember that was part of the history of Israel. They were defeated by the Babylonians, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple ransacked, and people were carried off as exiled into Babylon. And that was a period of disorientation, and the cry of many of them, reflected in Psalm 137, was this, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We can't worship God here. Jerusalem is the place where we should be. And so it plunged them into grief, into despair, into depression. So that physical exile has caused this sense of spiritual abandonment and this acute depression. I don't know if you have ever suffered from depression yourself, I don't know if anybody close to you has suffered from depression i'm sure in terms of ministry you will meet many people who are suffering depression it said that one in four people in britain will experience at some point in their life some expression of mental illness one in four and we're not immune from that and sometimes when there are these periods of loss disappointment It can plunge us into despair and when we look through this psalm you'll notice the symptoms, the common symptoms uh, of what we call reactive depression. Reactive depression is when you're reacting to a situation of loss or of grief. It's not the same as endogenous depression, which is when it's something to do with the chemical imbalance within you. It's it's caused by external circumstances, therefore it is more easily recoverable, but it is real nonetheless. When I was a teenager growing up, my father uh, suffered uh, depression. Uh, He'd been a coal miner came out of the pit because of his uh, health issues, got a job working for the local council, loved what he was doing, and then was made redundant. And it plunged him into a deep depression, and he would sit in his chair, staring into space, his eyes glazed over, lost in his own kind of thoughts and despair, eventually needed to be hospitalized, he was in hospital for, for many weeks. With that kind of reactive depression, eventually came out of it, but it was a very real thing and quite traumatic for us as a family. And the psalmist here is experienced something like that. In verse 3, he talks about his tearfulness. My tears have been my food day and night. One of the signs of depression is that you start crying for no reason. Men and women not related to a particular gender. You cry for nothing. Verse 5, you feel downcast and disturbed. Your mood is very low. You're restless. You can find no peace. There's this inner turmoil that will not stop, will not go away. You have a deep sadness of heart. You feel rejected and abandoned in verse 9 and verse 2. And sometimes emotional depression is kind of projected onto God and it becomes spiritual depression too. There is a famous book by uh, a well-known Christian leader called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote a book on spiritual depression. I used to have it on my bookshelf at home and sometimes when people would come in, you know, they like to look at your books. Do you know which was the book that people most went for? This book on spiritual depression. Depression. Quite interesting that. But he wrote a, a book on spiritual depression, that, that topic. Because sometimes how you're feeling emotionally translates into how you're feeling spiritually. And there's a deep connection between the two and he feels rejected and abandoned. And actually in verse 10, it, it leads to physical pain, a psychosomatic connection. Body, soul and spirit cannot be separated. Sometimes your body feels what's going on inside you. And sometimes these little illnesses that we get, they're actually psychosomatic. They're caused because the soul is not at peace. I was having my hair cut once and I said to the barber, I don't know what's wrong with my hair. It feels out of condition. And he says, maybe it's you that's out of condition. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, even your hair sometimes will reflect the state of your soul. That's what's going on here. That's the setting. But in this structure the psalmist is finding his way through his despair he is responding to it and the chorus that repeated chorus is the way that he is coping with it so i want to focus first of all on the chorus and it's repeated in verse 5 it's repeated in verse 11 and it's repeated in verse 5 of the second psalm and i put it in italics for you this beautifully poetic words This is when when I said earlier the Psalms are poetry. This is beautiful poetry. It's the language of the heart. It gives you words to use. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Here is a chorus, here is this little truth that he's holding on to, which he repeats and repeats until he gets hold of it. And I want to suggest to you four aspects of this chorus which are helpful. The first is this, to be honest about how we are feeling. Be honest about it. See, very often when people greet you, they say, How are you? And you say, Fine. But you're not. But you know, they really don't want to know anyway. <laughs> so if you were to tell them how you really feel, felt, uh, they'd be very embarrassed and they'd try to get away. So we all play this little game of pretense. Especially if you're a leader. And of course, if you are a leader, you have to be careful where you disclose what you're actually feeling, because some people can't cope with that actually. But you do need somewhere where you can be honest and where you can say, no, actually, this is what I feel today. This is what is going on inside me. Because feelings are real and they have to be acknowledged and they have to be faced up to. So the psalmist says, I am downcast. People who are depressed are often downcast. That is, they're they're walking or sitting looking into space or looking down at the floor, they are downcast, their mood is very low, they feel defeated, and that's how he describes himself. I am downcast, and he says, I'm also disturbed, my soul is disturbed within me. I don't have peace, I'm restless, I'm agitated, I'm anxious, I'm all these things. Be honest. How are you? And sometimes we do find it difficult to be honest because of our role, because of our position, but we must have places to go and people whom we can be with where we can actually be very honest. And I want to speak to the men men, we need to be honest about our feelings. I find a lot of men live a quiet depression, which live with a quiet depression that they will never acknowledge because they feel it's not a sign of. Of being strong to acknowledge that you feel downcast, that you feel some despair and some depression. But we need, if we're feeling these things, to acknowledge them because unacknowledged they will just grow and get worse. Be honest. Second thing is to ask questions. What the psalmist does is to ask questions of himself. He speaks to his soul Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? In other words, he holds an internal inquiry inquiry about what's going on here. And that's a helpful thing to do. If you feel depressed, ask, Why am I feeling depressed? What about that? What is it about that situation? What is it about what was just said that has caused me to feel the way that I feel? Some of you will maybe have had training in cognitive behavior therapy. I know the army has done training on that. And it's really helpful because it asks you to examine your own thoughts. Thoughts determine feelings and feelings determine behavior. So if you're feeling a certain thing and you're behaving a certain way, you need to get back to the root of it and say, what am I believing that's causing me to feel this and to behave like this? And then if you can identify the thought, you can... re. You can uh, capture that thought, take it captive, you can retrain that thought, you can exchange that thought for the truth and, and then you can move out of it. But very often we don't even know what we are thinking. We're just too busy feeling and responding accordingly. Ask questions of yourself. Understand those thoughts. That's where sometimes we need help to work through that process. And good listeners, good counsellors, good spiritual directors help us with that process. It's something sometimes we can't do for ourselves. Even the most experienced of us can't do it for for ourselves. It's like cutting your hair yourself. It's not an easy thing to do. Better to let someone do it for you. And if you want to explore your thoughts, it's, it's helpful to do it with somebody else who can just ask you the right kind of questions and help you to get to the root of it. In that book on spiritual depression, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. Can you understand that? Why are you downcast oh my soul? Talk to yourself. Don't just let your soul the seat of your emotions, don't let that just dominate how things are. Ask some questions of yourself. But then the third thing is this, to have faith. To have faith, a grounded optimism. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him. Here is the belief That says, This God who is good will not actually let me go. He will not let me fall. He will hold on to me, even though I don't feel it at this present moment. But I know, because I know the truth of Psalm 145, I know that He is near. I know that He will not let me be defeated. He will hold on to me. But it is a battle, it's a battle sometimes. And I must choose to hold on to the truth even when it is not my experience. Even when it doesn't seem to be true any longer. I must have faith, the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. And then the fourth thing is to lean hard. To lean oneself, to entrust oneself to the mercy, to the grace of God who is ever-present. I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. You see, he is my Saviour and he is my God. And therefore I will lean, I will trust, I will depend, even though my emotions are not consistent with that. I will seek to do it until it becomes real and night turns to morning again. So much wisdom is locked up in that chorus. And you will see that it's a to and froing that's going on here. The psalmist is facing up to the reality of his situation, but he's not letting that overwhelm him. He comes back with the truth of God. Then he feels another wave of despair coming over him and he comes back with the truth of God. And then another wave breaks over him but he comes back with the truth of God until eventually he triumphs, even in the midst of his despair. So let's look at these different movements then that are going on in the psalmist, in this honest writing. The first four verses, I've called it, I feel dry, spiritually dry, shriveled up. how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throngs. Here's a deep longing for God, a kind of spiritual dryness that has entered his soul, whereas before he used to be bubbling, full of joy, praise came easily to him, now his soul seems to be downcast and full of despair and there's no joy there any longer the bubbling up has gone his soul instead feels like a river in drought it's dried up he feels like a deer that is being pursued by the hunters and has been running 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 and has just is dying of thirst because there's no relief from the relentless pursuit of the enemy His soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And his cry is this, where can I go and meet with God? Where can I find God again in this foreign land, in this place of exile, in this Babylon? Where can I find God here? We'll come back to that question because if he were to examine his thought, he would recognize that that is a wrong thought actually. But for the people of Israel to be cast out of their promised land, taken as prisoners into Babylon, was just the end of the world to them. Where, if I can't, if I can't be in Jerusalem, how can I worship God? Is his question actually? And even memories of happier day days come back to haunt him. Sometimes memories can be bittersweet, can't they? He remembers how he used to be the leader. How he would be the one who would be calling others to worship God with loud shouts of praise, playing on his timbrel and with his harp and making music and melody to the Lord. And now it's all gone. It's all gone. And spiritually he feels dry. You may never have experienced that kind of spiritual state but believe me it's very common and it's very common amongst people in full time Christian ministry. People who give out and give out and give out and never take in for themselves sometimes find themselves utterly dry inside. And sometimes the experiences of life just take so much from you that you have nothing left to give. That's the situation that he feels himself in. But he comes back with the chorus, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And he seeks to apply that truth to his life. The second uh, section, verses 6 to 11, I've titled it, I Feel Overwhelmed. I Feel Overwhelmed. I feel that I can't cope. I feel that there's too much coming at me. I just can't take any more. I feel overwhelmed. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the height of Hermon, from Mount Mitzah. Here again you have his sense of homesickness. He's in Babylon but he's thinking about the promised land the beautiful places of home, homesickness is a very real thing. Many people in cross-cultural ministry, many people who work in other cultures and other contexts can feel deeply homesick. (coughs) Even within your own culture, if you're in a foreign land, if you're in a place that is is totally alien to you, where you don't feel you belong anymore, you can feel (coughs) this kind of homesickness. That's what he's feeling, it's very real. His soul is downcast. And then verse 7 Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. In other words, he's attributing this to God. He's saying, God, you have done this to me. It's like I'm a boulder on the seashore and the waves are coming crashing in upon me. And you are the author of it. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. That's quite an enigmatic expression, deep calls to deep. What it seems to me is that in these deep experiences of life, God is inviting me into a deeper experience with himself. Let me say that again. In the deep experiences of life, God invites us into a deeper experience with himself. If you want to know intimacy with God, if you want to grow deeper with God, he may well invite you into the deeper places because that's where he is to be found. Many people remain shallow as believers because they don't want to go to the deep places. But God takes the psalmist there in order that his experience may be deepened But even there, in the darkness, feeling overwhelmed, there is still hope. Takes me back to that thin thread that I felt was holding me. The grip of God's grace. Listen to what he says. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. In other words, he is not totally abandoned. And this musician who has sung so many songs has still got one or two songs deep in his heart that just give him this glimmer of hope and just remind him of God's unfailing love. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me because God will not let us be tempted or tested beyond that which we can endure. He knows how much we can take. He doesn't push us beyond our limits. He will take us further than we expect. But he will always be reassuring us somehow, some way. Sometimes just a word from a friend. Sometimes just a song that we listen to. Sometimes a word of scripture that comes to remind us that God will never let you go. And the psalmist is held. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? You see, the Babylonians made fun of them, of the people of Israel, because it, it was as if their God had been defeated and the Babylonians were, so, were strong and they would taunt them. and They would say to them, Come, sing us some of the songs of Zion, those great songs of victory that you used to sing. You're not singing now, are you? Uh, In fact, when I'm watching Barnsley, that's often what the opposing supporters shout. You're not singing anymore. The song is gone, you see. You're not singing anymore. You're defeated, aren't you? And how powerful is the accuser of the brethren, Satan? He loves to come and accuse you and say, what a failure you are. You see, God has abandoned you There's no hope for you, you know, you've done it this time, you've really blown it. You may as well give up. Why don't you quit? Why don't you let it all go? But he comes back with the chorus, you see, this is a wrestling match, this is a fight. He may have got a blooded nose, but he's going to come back again. He's not giving up. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. And we have to do that, friends. There is a battle for the soul sometimes. It's real. It's personal. It's deep. And then the third phase is this, I feel Abandoned. I feel abandoned into Psalm 43. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God, my God. It's one thing to feel overwhelmed. It's another feel, thing to feel abandoned. This is a deeper feeling now. That God actually has been inactive, unresponsive. He feels abandoned by God. He cries to God that God would step into this situation, that he would deal with the Babylonians, that's the unfaithful nation, but still there is that feeling of rejection, that God actually is not doing anything for me, he's not listening to my pleas, not hearing my cry. So he's full of mourning, that sense of mourning, that garment of heaviness, that spirit of heaviness comes upon him again as he feels it's hopeless. He's oppressed. This is spiritual oppression, oppressed by the enemy. But still there is that glimmer of hope. Send me your light and your faithful care. All I need is that little word from you, God, that will give light to my path and a lamp for my feet. Let it come. Speak your word of life to me, God in my need. Let your faithful care lead me. I know you will not abandon me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain. And here is his hope. His hope is that one day, the day will come when I will sing again your songs in Jerusalem and in the temple. I'll pick up my harp and my lyre and I'll praise you again. That's his hope. And he comes back to that place of hope. Hope in God. For I shall again praise you, my Saviour and my God. And then comes the chorus again. And that's where it stops. We don't actually see him come right through the other side. I'm sure he did, but maybe it took a bit longer. But this is, if you like, his way of dealing with it, his way of coping with it, and it's instructive for us because it gives us a way of dealing with our own despair and depression and disappointment. When things are not working out in our personal lives, when things are not working out in our ministry life, when we feel disappointed with God, when we feel let down, this is where we come back to. This is the reason God has given us these words that we may use them. But it's a battle and it's a struggle and sometimes it will last a long time and we have to hold on and believe in God's grip of grace upon our lives. But let me just take you back to the questions that the psalmist is asking and we'll just think about the answer to those questions because what happens in a time of disorientation is that questions form within us and we need to find the answers to those questions and often through a time of disorientation we discover new truth. Or we discover truth that before was just in our head but now actually is formed in our hearts so that we know it deeply and personally and with conviction. His first question, going back to it uh, in verse 3 of the 42 was uh, no, which uh, verse 2, sorry where can I go and meet with God? Where can I go and meet with God? Why? His thinking is this. Jerusalem has been destroyed, the temple has been ransacked, therefore God has been defeated. And if we can't be in the promised land and we have to be in Babylon, well, how are we going to worship God? Because God is confined to the promised land, isn't he? Well, that may seem like an outrageous idea to you because you are new covenant people and you live on the other side of the coming of Jesus into the world and the understanding that we have through his coming. You know that God is everywhere and we can worship God wherever we are. But often in the Old Testament they didn't have that understanding. They felt that God was localized to one particular place. So here is the new truth that's coming into being for the sake of the psalmist but for the sake of the people of Israel. You know what? You can worship God as much in Babylon as you can in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That was a profound new understanding that they didn't have before. Where can I go and meet with God? Well, you know you can meet with God at any time and in any place. You know it. The psalmist had to discover that truth. The omnipresence of God. The second uh, question is, why have you forgotten me in verse 9? Why have you forgotten me? Sometimes when God seems not to answer our prayers, sometimes when things don't seem to happen as quickly as we would like them to happen, we feel that God has forgotten us. That's how we feel. But actually it's not true. God can never forget us. And again, looking at it from a New Covenant perspective, we know that God has graven us on the palm of his hands, that Jesus is there as our merciful and faithful high priest in heaven heaven, ever living to make intercession for us. We are never forgotten. Though we might feel we are. But the truth says, no, you are not forgotten. You have not been forgotten and I will never forget you. And then the third question is, why have you rejected me? That's in Psalm 43 verse 2. Why have you rejected me? To be forgotten is one thing. to be rejected is another. It means to be pushed to one side, abandoned and forsaken, but God will never, ever reject us. It Does't matter what we have done, where we find ourselves, God will not reject us. He will not abandon us. He will not abandon us because Jesus took that on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? He took that abandonment so that we need not be abandoned. And even though our emotions may lie to us and deceive us, the truth is that God will never ever leave us nor forsake us. We come back to these deep truths in these moments of disorientation and we find them for ourselves and we discover them for ourselves and they become real to us. Not theory... Not just doctrine that we believe, but life that we live. That's the purpose of the psalm. So that's Psalm 42 and 43. It's about the disorientation that comes when dreams have been shattered and hopes have not come to pass. We wonder, where is God in all of this? Difficult place to be. So what I want you to do now is to meet together with others. And we've got... uh, Uh, again about 10 minutes uh, to do this and there's some two questions at the bottom first one says why do you think honesty is important in our walk with god even for those in positions of leadership why is authenticity so rare that's suggesting that it might be rare And then some questions. What has been your own experience of depression or emotional struggle in your Christian life? Now realize that might be quite personal for some people and just feel free to share only that which you want to share. Uh, But it may help uh, to do that. It may be your own experience. It may be the experience of somebody close to you. It may be the experience that uh, friends or people in your congregations have been through. How did you cope? What helps and what doesn't help? So a little bit of thinking about that and maybe some time to pray together about that as well. So uh, let's see. what's uh, Where's my time scale? What time is lunch, uh, Jane? 1235. 12.35. Okay, Yeah. So if we, if we just finish at half past 12 and then we'll just have five minutes just to sum up. Okay? Enjoy some time together. can, of course, continue talking over lunch. Okay, I wonder if, you, if there is any question. I don't mind to take a question or two just before we finish if you've got any questions. That is a difficult area, the, the whole area of disorientation and we've only just touched on it and that's why uh, the book will be helpful for you because there's much more in the book and looking at some of the more difficult psalms as well. Anything you're not sure about or want to ask you about? You're ready for your lunch, I can see. <laughs> that song that uh, Dave Bilbra. Uh, wrote and that I played to you he talks about those so in tears will reap with songs of joy I'm sure you're familiar with those words, it's one of those promises that in ministry we do hold on to very tightly and very uh, dearly does anybody know where it comes from, that promise? (laughs) Roughly Psalm, yeah it's a psalm it's actually Psalm 126. If you have a, a, a Bible you want to turn to it, I'll just read It's a very short psalm. It's a, it's a psalm that comes out of that period of exile that we've just been thinking about. Put your hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my Lord and my Saviour. And of course, God did bring the people back out of exile when the work that He wanted to do of purification within them was completed, then they returned. Psalm 126 reflects that situation. Let me read it to you. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. We never thought this day would come, but it came. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. This is the joy on the other side of the valley. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. You see, it's a song of the restoration that comes after exile. And they did come back, and they did come back singing that new song, and they did come back, as it were, with sheaves, with fruit that had been born during that time of exile. They were not the same. They were deepened. They were humbled. Uh, They became closer to God as a result. And it leaves with us an abiding legacy, a truth which is ours to take hold of. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Believe me, in ministry, there will be days when you sow in tears. But the truth is this you will reap with songs of joy. Hold on to it. That truth is ours because people, like the psalmist, went through the dark valley. Let's just pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for this morning, for all the truth that your word holds for us, in particular that truth, Lord. And we pray for those today who maybe are sowing in tears. Maybe in this room, Lord, people who have shed their tears. Maybe our friends and colleagues out there on the front line of ministry today, sowing in tears, through their tears, despite their tears. But thank you, Lord, that there is this promise that when we do that, we will reap with songs of joy. May we also know that joy, Lord. May we also come rejoicing, bringing those sheaves, bringing the lives of people who have been changed and transformed, of situations that have been resolved, of prayers that have been answered and so on, Lord. May we know the songs of joy in our heart too, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.